My name is Mata Zapeta. I am the co-founder and CEO of Switchboard, which is a startup based in Portland, Oregon. Investment comes from the Latin, which means to dress in a particular clothing or uniform. And I think what's interesting about that is so often we think about investment coming from investors or mentors. And really, the definition of investment is that somebody is taking a chance on you and they're envisioning what your future will look like in some future costume that, that they are certain that you can wear with authority and, and return their profits. CEOs need to be able to buy the story that they're telling, which is that that uniform and that costume is one that will fit and one that they can deliver on. And no amount of posturing or, you know, smoke and mirrors, song and dance is ultimately going to convince the CEO. It really comes down to doing the type of self-exploration that you do at Reboot to convince yourself that you are the leader that you can be. And so Reboot is the top example that I can think of for CEOs if they want to make an investment in themselves and in their role as leaders. To hear from others about their Reboot experience and to learn more about investing in your leadership, go to reboot.io slash praise. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to take a moment and introduce you to our new sponsor, JustWorks. JustWorks is awesome. They help businesses take care of their benefits, payroll, HR. They do it all so seamlessly, easily, automatically, and we know they're awesome because we use them. And the Reboot Podcast is really more than just Jerry and guests. It takes a whole team to put it together, and JustWorks makes it easy to support that team. Hi, I'm Charles Gamble. I'm a freelance podcast producer and audio engineer, and I'm an assistant producer to Dan on the Reboot Podcast. So Charles, do you want to talk a little bit about how we came to make this ad? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we were talking about all the different angles we could take. It struck me how much more difficult it's been to record this than it's ever been to use Just Works. And it reminded me when Allie was taking care of getting everything set up for uh, how to pay me. So she sent me this link to Just Works, and like two or three minutes later, I was done, and I was like, is that all there is to it? And so it seems like I had a meeting with Allie a few days later, and I put on the agenda specifically to ask her, did I do Just Works right? Because it seemed too simple. Because, yeah, all I had to do was fill in my you know, how I wanted to get paid and, and it was done. But I'm not joking when I say setting up JustWorks to set up our payroll, our benefits, our insurance actually took less time than it took for Charles to describe <laughs> it. And we use JustWorks. We're so grateful for their support of this podcast. And to learn more about how they could work for you, go to reboot.io slash JustWorks. Life is to be felt not just figured out. Thomas Hardy. We have no idea what we're doing. We'll never figure this out. I bemoaned to my coach, Jerry. This was many, many years ago, long before I was recording podcast introductions. I was Jerry's client 
and I just spent a very, very long Memorial Day weekend with my three co-founders. We'd been cooped up in a dark apartment, frantically trying to perfect our make-or-break pitch. The pitch was still a disaster. We were exhausted and arguing, and I felt shame. Why can't we do it, but Company Z can? Jerry smiled. Ah, Company Z. Their team was in here last week. You know what they said to me? We have no idea what we're doing. You, my friend, you are now seeing how the sausage is made. Welcome to being an entrepreneur. As entrepreneurs and leaders, or dare I say, as human beings, we're often in or feel we're in uncharted waters, a place where making things up as we go is a necessity. Feeling lost in those places can be anxiety-inducing. We feel incompetent. We feel shameful. What can make things even worse is that we often only hear and see the finished products, the sausages, if you will, of others. We can end up feeling that everyone else has figured it out but me. But how true is that really? And perhaps the better question, how can owning my own anxiety in these areas help me step more fully into my authentic self and even increase my capacity for happiness? We are honored to welcome one of our key teachers at Reboot, Sharon Salzberg, to the podcast. In this conversation, Sharon and Jerry discuss Sharon's own entrepreneurial path, a new definition of success and failure, authenticity, loving kindness, and the question, does anyone really know what they're doing? As always, show notes, quotes, links, and more on our website at reboot.io slash podcast. Enjoy. I've had friends. I've had clients. I've had past clients. I'm going to be honest. This is the one I'm most excited about. <laughs> so I love you, uh, everybody else, but Sharon Salzberg is my teacher, and I feel honored to be in dialogue and conversation with you today. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I feel honored to be here. Well, you know, it's uh, when we're thinking about potential guests for the podcast, I often thought about asking you, and, you know, you and I have had dialogue over the years that and talked about some of the things that I do here at Reboot and, and th some of the things I do as a coach. And we kind of laugh and I'm going to put words in your mouth. I think you hear the similarities between the work that you might do with a student and the work that I might do as, as a coach, not to put me in the same level as any other teachers. But the notion of we're all working with the same material. It's what it, I think it was Jack Cornfield who wrote One Dharma, right? It's, it's Joseph, actually. Joseph, Joseph Goldstein, yeah. right, yeah. right, right. I hope, you, you know me, like everybody, I confuse the two of them. <laughs> That's true, everybody does. That's right. <laughs> and there really is only one Dharma, right? It's just kind of the truth. So, so th with that, I thought it would be really kind of fun to explore with you someone who's taught me so much, both directly and indirectly through your works, through, through your incredible... Uh, writing, some of the issues that I encounter fairly frequently as a coach, some of the things that really in so many ways bring people to their knees, and they don't necessarily understand the relationships uh, that, are, that are there. And the first theme that I was hoping to explore is the whole notion of working with uncertainty. 
And, and the reason for that is that, you know, you could argue that all of life is uncertain because it is, right? And you could argue that all of work is uncertain because work is an aspect of life. So it is. But there's something particularly challenging around life in a startup uh, in which um, you're inventing new products and services. You're inventing oftentimes a new way of delivering those products and services. You're inventing out of whole cloth an institution. And for many, many people, it's the first time they've ever led people. And so in that classic teaching way, it's such a teachable moment (laughs) because it just brings up such lack of awareness about what's going to unfold. Does this resonate with you at all? It does in a funny way. I'm listening to you right now. I just started thinking about the Insight Meditation Society right? and whether that qualifies as a startup. Absolutely does. Go ahead. I've met Joseph Goldstein in India, and and then we met Jack Cornfield in Boulder, Colorado, Mm. the first summer of Naropa's opening, um, 1974. And we're wandering around teaching retreats when we get an invitation. And at the end of that retreat, we never knew if we'd have another retreat till the next invitation came. And then someone suggested we start a retreat center of our own. And Mm. we went with it. And the people who really knew how to do it, meaning they could be on a board of directors and knew what a mortgage was and so on, uh, were on the East Coast. So we came back to the East Coast to to look for property and ended up buying this property in Barrie, Massachusetts. So that was 39 years ago. Wow. I was 23 years old. Mm. And uh, we didn't have maybe a new product or service because it was a pretty ancient service, except that it was in a completely new form. Right. And nobody had ever done what we were doing. It was the first center begun by Westerners, run by Westerners, that Mm. wasn't referring back to a particular Asian teacher or monastery. And uh, everything was new. Everything was up for grabs. Mm. Should we have Buddha images or no Buddha images? The practice is not about becoming a Buddhist. Why should we have Buddha images? But then we also didn't make this stuff up, right? Mm. It's got some kind of an, an everything. And uh, there was total uncertainty about how it would be received. We were creating the market, actually, mm-hmm. which did not really exist. There were mm-hmm. very small pockets of people who put in a lot of effort to find this stuff. You know, it wasn't that easy. And suddenly we were saying, here it is, you know, in your language, mm-hmm. um, in a way that you can understand with imagery that wasn't only about chariots and, you know, yeah, yeah. That, that's about here and now for you. And that was taking into account um, other social forces like feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was all brand new and uh, really scary at the <laughs> same time. But. But now, looking back, I think, wow, what a time. Yeah, well, you know, I, 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 as, as someone who has been a part and parcel of a startup community for 20 years now, 20, 22 years, yes, that's a startup. Um, the fact that it was a nonprofit, the fact that it was um, not necessarily deriving a particular technology doesn't, doesn't mean anything. It was entrepreneurial in its endeavor. And the reinvention, I mean, every idea that we generate is derivative. And 
as a former investor, one of the things I used to say as an investor was, what is the analog analog? What is the non-digital previous incarnation of this? And there were previous incarnations, no pun intended, of creating retreat centers. Mm -hmm. But you were inventing a new way to make that accessible. And you and Jack and Joseph in particular, but I know that there was a group of people around you, um, in effect, uh, for those of our listeners who don't really know this, really brought these ancient teachings in a modern world. Now, there was Trumpa Rinpoche who was bringing Tibetan teachings, there was uh, Suzuki Roshi who was bringing the Zen traditions, and there were some incredibly powerful and important teachers all bringing these different uh, teachings to, to light. But but you happy band of crazy wanderers, <laughs> yeah. ex-hippies all, right? That's right. Um, were trying to, from from as 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 your student and heir in some ways, looked at this and said, "You seem to be trying to bring these teachings into a new container mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to make them accessible in a different language and, and a different culture." Is that right? It's completely right, and and that's why. You know, it's interesting. You know, I feel so grateful that we had one another, mm. that we really had a community, because none of us knew what we were doing, mm. and it was a tremendous balance. We had a vision, and we also had a building. You know, all mm. of a sudden, we mm. had a roof, mm. and people kept saying things like, "What if the roof starts to leak?" <laughs> you know, there there are real life concerns here. That mm. this, you know, this is the country where everyone needs to buy health insurance mm-hmm. and. Uh, we have a staff, you know, we have to take care of them. We can't just mm. say you're on your own or, you know, so, and we had a vision. Mm. Um, and trying to find balance between all of that. And uh, I'm just endlessly grateful we had one another and that we could bounce all those concerns off one another. Mm. You know, I was really struck by, you saw me run over to write it down. You said, none of us knew what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Sharon, I can't tell you the number of laughs that I get when I speak in front of uh, uh, entrepreneurs and I say, who here is brave enough to admit that they haven't a clue as to what they're doing? <laughs> Me, right, right, right. Because that feeling, which is a kind of utter incompetence yeah. on making this up, that feeling is so prevalent that even when I name it, People look like their eyes dart left and right to say, oh, my God, other people have this feeling, too. Mm. You know, yeah, so, 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 so to add to the understanding of it, I think what they may be experiencing, which I suspect the three of you didn't necessarily experience, but I don't know, is that they couple that with a sense of shame. Mm-hmm. Because they live in an environment where the. Ex- implicit expectation is that they're supposed to know what they're doing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. When the truth is, everyone's making it up every single day. And so, in addition to feeling incompetent and overwhelmed, they feel ashamed. Uh-huh. Well, that's a pity. I don't know that we were totally free of that. I, I wouldn't mm. have called it shame. I have to think about it. I wasn't, you know, ashamed at 
not knowing what I was doing because I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, but I think the balance was so hard to strike, mm. you know, that um, we did have a product, so to speak, that had a lineage, you know, and so we couldn't really water it down. And mm. then there was that big uncertainty. Well, is this a, is this a bridge too far, you know, mm. like, have I blown it? Have I, have I really mm. um, let go of the, have I lost the essence, you know, have mm. I? Have I really taken this in a bad direction? And um, so there's a lot of fear. And mm. and there was also, uh, we weren't always in total accord with um, certain tradition bearers, you know, and we really felt we had to find our way. And so uh, that was also a very emotionally laden process to mm. kind of say, well, maybe that was, and we did make plenty of mistakes too. And, and say, okay, we've got to take another look at this. We've got to look for another angle. Or I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm really going to listen. And in the end, I'm going to have to feel mm. what's the right way, or we're going to have to feel what's the right direction. Mm. So there, there was a lot of a lot of emotional layers. But I didn't I didn't feel bad about not knowing what I was doing because nobody really knew what they were doing. Right, right. You weren't necessarily you weren't necessarily constantly comparing yourself and my no. partners and I often refer to it as the middle school atmosphere that mm -hmm. a lot of the listeners deal with, you know, so imagine if you will, um, growing up in the shadow of an Uber, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? That's right. And so layer in all of this fear, layer in all of this wish to do justice to the idea, to the vision the fear of disappointing that own vision, plus the sense of incompetence and the fear of around, you know, how do I actually handle everything that's just con feels like it's in constant jeopardy all the time, uh -huh. Uh -huh. while simultaneously watching what feels like everybody else succeeding and me making no progress. And that's the life of a modern entrepreneur. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's really tough. You know, I often think of the teachings um, when I think of those situations, and I, I, I don't know if you're comfortable with this, but I'm going to read some of your words back to oh, you. Oh, sure. <laughs> Uh-oh. So this is, uh, this is from Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness, uh, one of our favorite books, right, Jane? <laughs> Thank you. And, and it's two separate quotes, two separate sections, but each dealing with the same things. The basis of the Buddha's teach, psychological teaching is that our efforts to control what is inherently uncontrollable cannot yield the security, safety, and happiness we seek. By engaging in a delusive quest for happiness, we only bring suffering upon ourselves. In our frantic search for something to quench our thirst, we overlook the water all around us and drive ourselves into exile from our own lives. Oh, that's so beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. So am I crazy or does that really apply here to what we're talking no, about? No, I think it does. I was going to ask you, do you think it works to redefine success? Oh, yes. 
Say more, though. Tell me more. What, well, what I was, occurred I've to done you. a few programs now with my friend George Mumford, who's mm-hmm. the meditation coach, currently the meditation coach for the New York Knicks. Mm-hmm. And these programs have all been in New York, and the Knicks apparently had a ghastly season. Yeah. You know, although previously he was the meditation coach for the L.A. Lakers and before that for the Chicago Bulls. So he has some championships behind him. But every time we do this thing in New York um, – you know, we're just talking about practice mindfulness and, and how he applies it and how I apply it. And, and somebody always asks about the Knicks, you know, and how badly they're doing. And he said, I redefine success. I think success is doing better than you did before. Mm. You know, that's how I'm defining success with them. Yeah. And that's our aim. And, you know, and he also had a very interesting thing. Uh, which maybe fits in as well, where he, he said the move from being solely fixated on individual excellence, because, of course, these are superstars, um, to considering yourself a part of a team is actually the essential move so that you see the interdependence of everyone on the team instead of feeling it's all up to you, your mm. glory, your failure. Mm. Um, and so people say, well, how do you get these people, you know, these amazing superstars to think that way? And he said, because that's how you win. Mm. That's how you actually have to do it. So it's really those two things. Like, can we define success differently? I mean, not in a goofy sort of way, you know, but in a real way. Well, and, I, I think your question was really prescient because that is an essential element of what I try to teach. And what I do is I take it back. One of the first things I do, and and I'm from Brooklyn, so I'll curse. I'll say things like, I don't give a fuck what happens to your company. I actually care if you survive. That's right. Because, and the words I tend to use are greater resiliency, mm-hmm. greater capacity to withstand the vagaries of every day. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, I know that there that there's a neurotic attribute to my wish it's neurotic in the sense that it's based in my own suffering and having been 38 and coming to the edge of a, a deep, deep, deep depression that where I was suicidal mm. and, and realizing that I needed to back away and really alter and redefine success and failure. And, you know, and, and by redefining the success as not necessarily a greater and greater shareholder value, but a greater and greater emotional experience so that work becomes a means for full self-actualization, uh-huh. right? So that work becomes a means by which we become more human, not less. All of a sudden, what we're seeking, the suffering we're seeking to alleviate is that Dukkha is that internal suffering, that existential questioning. Um, so, uh, you know, from where I sit, I do think that the redefinition of success and, and the corollary to that is the redefinition of failure. Uh-huh. Right. So failure is not necessarily, re- you know, running out of money. Um, now, there's a there's an interesting byproduct when you do this, which is that I think you start to create organizations where the inherent humanity and creativity of people starts to become unleashed. Mm-hmm. And just like George may be experiencing on, on you know, on, on the 
on the court, what ends up happening is individual superstars start to act like a team and the interdependence. So their experience of being together is better. And it's not a direct correlation, but they do start to perform better by traditional metrics. Right, right. Yeah, it's funny. You're reminding me of, um, I just told someone this story about the Dalai Lama where I was at uh, Emory University some years ago and he was on a panel uh, with Richard Gere and Alice Walker. Mm. And the first question, the panel was sponsored by the art department. So the, the first question was basically, does great creativity have to come out of great suffering, great torment? And Alice Walker said in her early uh, career, she felt that. Her mentor was Langston Hughes. He felt that, and she picked that up. But she said now as she's getting older and she's getting happier, she thinks her work is better. And then Richard Gere said when he was a young, angry young man, he could only play angry young men. And then as he got older and happier, his range actually expanded. And the Dalai Lama did not understand the question. It was like so foreign. And he was like, it was just, you know, he couldn't get it because it Mm -hmm. comes from a totally different perspective. And finally he said, you know, people, I mean, he didn't say schlep, but he basically said, people are schlepping me to see these things, to say, oh, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it interesting? And he said, in Tibet, something was considered beautiful and wonderful and creative depending on what happened to the creator in the process. It's not the product that you assess, like, wow, that's a great work of art. What you say is, wow, that person became so much kinder, Mm. or that person learned so much. Mm. Uh, You know, maybe you spent 20 years on one object, carving it, creating it, but you, you really are the work. It's you, not it. So, so success becomes defined by who I am. That's right. Moment to moment to moment in that process. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, one thought occurred to me as you were asking, as re- relating that question. I also used to hold that view, and you know, I adore writing, and I would often tap into the dark places within mm-hmm. me to write. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, what I've come to understand is that the issue isn't about whether or not it's the dark stuff or the light stuff. Um, it's as much as it's the real stuff. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and um, it, it's this notion of being authentically who you are in that moment. So if you're sad, you're sad. And if you're joyful, you're joyful. It's not pretending to be or trying to be forcing your way to be something other than who you are. Um, You know, in some ways it's a radical approach to leadership as well, because a corollary question to that is that often arises is, well, Steve Jobs was an ass Uh and he really drove people crazy. So should I be like him? Uh Mm-hmm. And my answer it tends to be, well, you're not Steve Jobs. So mm-hmm. the question is moot. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because all you're going to do is engender distrust and violence in the organization by you pretending to be someone who you're not in the moment. 
Right. That's right. You know, that, that, that I'll, I'll bring up another quote. Which, and this time this comes from Real Happiness at Work, one of your more recent books. You wrote, Authenticity is inextricably linked to happiness, on the job and off. It rests on a sense of belonging, not just in the way we normally use the word belonging, as being part of a team effort at work or being accepted into a particular group, but also feeling centered, feeling at home in our body, in our own sense of values, in our own dignity. Tell me more about authenticity and what you meant by that. I think I I really mean a sense of wholeness. You know, it's not like sometimes people confuse authenticity with impulsiveness, you know, like uh, I'm going to lay into you because that's what I feel, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm not going to consider skill or or anything um, in that in that regard. And and I don't think that's what it means. I I think it means. being able to express vulnerability, mm. if that's what's actually happening, um, being able to express uncertainty, mm. and maybe the balance of uncertainty with vision or aspiration, mm. so that you can say, I don't know exactly how we're going to get there, this is where I want to get, mm. and it's it's a beautiful, frank, open expression. Mm. Um, it's not laying blame on others when there's... Uh, you know, some responsibility to be had oneself. Mm. Um, and so I think it's presenting, it's so rare in a workplace that one is a whole person. It's one of the biggest areas of compartmentalization. People can't find themselves at work. You know, their values, their ethics, their hopes, their dreams, you know, they're all shut down mm. for like 8 to 14 hours a day, you know, and then, mm. then you go home. Um, you know, so it's the possibility of, of really being present, even if you don't know the answer to something, it's, it's expressing that, like, here's the dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it reminds me of a a story client once said to me, you know, that, that they'd been planning to raise a bunch of money from, from an investor and they were expecting what's called a term sheet, which is the first stage in the process. And then they didn't get the term sheet. And so he called me up in a panic. He said, what should I tell the staff? And I said, well, how about the truth? Yeah. And he said, well, they might all leave. I said, well, would you rather have them stay for a lie? Mm-hmm. Right? And, and the truth is, that is what we do. We create these conditions where we, we try to protect people from feelings. We protect people from the authentic experience. We push away what's actually happening. And we can, we can flip out too much, right? We can go into panic, because in some ways panic mm-hmm. is an overreaction, an unreal reaction to the situation, right? It's overreacting. Yeah. Well, it's like saying there's no possibility of change. Right. We've now seen the end of the story, and this right. is it, and it's bad. That's right. That's right. And, you know, to me, they're two sides of the same experience. Nothing is wrong, and everything is wrong. Mm-hmm. Whereas, it's just what is, and let's get let's use some skillful means to discern what is and what is not. What is my projection and all my fears from my childhood, or my fear of disappointing my teachers or the people who taught me, or 
versus the reality of what's actually happening in that workplace. You know, I, I, you know, when when you were talking about the experience of authenticity and and the compartmentalization at work, it reminded me too of of a statistic that I read just recently. Something like seventy percent of Americans are massively dissatisfied in their work. Mm. That's a big number. That's a big number. That's a big number. And we spend so much of our lives in relationship to our careers and to our jobs and to our aspirational work. Whereas if we if we created spaces, I think, through our own leadership, regardless of our title, and through our own presence, we might create space for the whole person and kind of lower that dissatisfaction number. Oh, definitely. Well, it's like the radical redefining of success, mm-hmm. right? Like, I was authentic today. That's a good day. Or, yes. yeah. um, you know, I mean, there's certain metrics that are real. Of course, you have to stay in business or even thrive. But beyond that, you know, so much of it is a fabrication. Like, if I go to a bookstore and there are 20 people there instead of the 50 I had dreamed of, you know, do I only look at the empty chairs or do I actually talk to 20 people who are there and have an authentic and and real and often beautiful relationship, Mm. you know, in that moment with those people. I mean, I've had a a book launch, um, I guess it was Real Happiness at Work in a blizzard in Brooklyn, you know, and I thought, great, you know, what if they cancel? But they didn't cancel, right? So I had to get from Manhattan to Brooklyn, and I thought, no one will be there, like zero. And I thought, if there's zero people there, you know, maybe I can go home. Like, But there were people there, you know, and, and I think they must have all walked, you know, yeah. like the people lived in the neighborhood. But what an amazing thing. These people came out in a blizzard, mm. you know, and... and we could have an incredible time together. Or I could really look at the empty chairs and think, damn, you know, they should have canceled it. It's all their fault. Mm-hmm. See, and, and one of the reasons I love you, I love you generally, but one of the reasons I love you as a teacher is that even in these little moments, you reveal, oh, right, Sharon struggles with this too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, am I going to put a book out and are they going to accept it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and what's 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 going to happen here, and what's going to happen here? So so how do you, how does someone with a forty year practice, a little more forty four forty four year practice, yeah. how how do how do you hold your relationship to your own, you know, sense of of self as it relates to that, your sense of self worth. Or your sense of, you know, the the fears associated with it. You know, you may not carry the same fears as some of the folks that, that I work with, but but fears are fears. Mm-hmm. How do you work with those? Well, I, I think obviously there's an enormous difference. You know, in 44 years of practice, I see things so much more quickly. I have a, a almost like a relationship of rueful amusement. Like, oh, you again. Yeah. Because I know, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want to spend like the next 18 months thinking about that blizzard, you know, and yeah. that publisher and that bookstore. And it's like, there lies misery. Yeah. 
And I feel capable of so much happiness at this point, you know, which I never started with um, at all. And not that I'm always there, but I feel that is my capacity as a, as a person. And I believe it's everyone's capacity. And I just don't want to spend all that endless time. Plus, there's the irony of how much everything changes. You know, I once gave it, there's this quality in Buddhist teaching called sympathetic joy, as you know, mm. which is joy in the happiness of others. Like instead of feeling so jealous or envious, um, really feeling joy for them. So I was once giving a talk at the Insight Meditation Society about sympathetic joy, and I used this example of the opposite. I said it's like, you know, you, you're in New York City, and it's Sunday morning, and you go and buy the New York Times, and you open it up to the book review section, and you open that up to the bestseller list, and you see your friend's book has gotten on the New York Times bestseller list, mm. and you think, eh. <laughs> that's too bad it should have been my book and not only that it would have been my book except somehow they stole it it's like the New York Times was heading right to my house and they like hijacked them and they totally don't deserve it I deserve it so by the greatest of ironies I had three different friends sitting in that room doing the retreat each of whom had had a book on the New York Times bestseller list and they each came up to me after the talk and said is that how you felt when you saw it? And I said, no, no. Those words just came out of my mouth, you know? Yeah. So like yeah. five years later, eight years later, something like that, I had a book on the New York Times bestseller list, Real Happiness, Yeah. which I still don't know how that happened. I felt like it was a total fluke, you know? And Well, it happens to be a great book, but that's besides the point. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, but it was like, what, what, mm. you know? And then I could be on the other side of it. Yeah which was very interesting. And yeah. if you had told me, like, when I was giving that talk, that I would ever see that turnaround, never. I never would have thought that. You know, but now I'm old enough, you know, so that I've seen that, as you've seen that, again and again and again. Yeah. Life's constantly changing. And there's not only uncertainty and fear in that, there's endless possibility and movement. And the ways we define ourselves, like I'm the kind of writer who will never get a book on the New York Times bestseller list. Like, how do you know that? You know, or I can only go so far, or, you know, my, my uh, possibilities, my sense of potential is really compromised and, and it's kind of, you know, blunted at this point. But how do we know that? Mm. It's, only, it's only a construct that we're laying on ourselves. And, um, you know, and even better is when that's combined with a radical redefinition of success. Mm. You know, like maybe I never get a book on the New York Times bestseller list. And I'm happy for every single friend who does. Mm -hmm. Then I'm really, really happy. Mm. I, I was, I, I, it was so beautiful, Sharon, and and I was, I'm really struck by this phrase and and the notion of recognizing my capacity to be happy. Yeah. And really working with that and then expanding out from that. So I'm going to ask a leading question because I yeah. think I know the answer to this, having been your student now for a while. What's the relationship between cultivating the capability of happiness and loving kindness? Oh, I, th I think there's a, I mean, it's a great correlation between loving kindness for yourself. Say more? And and and, well, and 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 some of the listeners might not really understand the term loving kindness. So, if you can give a, a sure. brief, yeah, 
Sure. Well, loving kindness is the common translation of a word in the Buddhist teaching, um, which has to do with um, a real care. The, the literal translation of the word is friendship. So it's like becoming a friend to yourself mm. primarily. And then based on that foundation, opening to a, a recognition of connection with others and ultimately all others. So it doesn't mean you like somebody or you're going to give them all your money or take them home with you. But there's this deep, deep sense that our lives have something to do with one another, that we're, we live in an interdependent universe, and so we don't feel so alone and cut off. And interestingly enough, it, it doesn't begin with self-abnegation or self-condemnation and utter deference to others. It begins with loving kindness for oneself. Because mm -hmm. it's almost like, you you know, you use the word resilience. That's We need a reservoir of resilience within us. We need some sense of resource within us where we can't really care about others ultimately mm. in a sustained way. And so I think that um, one of the phrases that's used in loving kindness meditation is like, may I be happy. And it's like gift giving, you know, it's not meant to sound like pleading or imploring, but it's giving ourselves that gift, like, may I be happy. And people hear themselves saying it like, may I be happy? Like, no way, you know, I don't deserve that or that's wrong, I shouldn't be happy, I should be miserable, or, you know, mm. uh, I should be at, at best, you know, medi medium, you know, I shouldn't mm. be really happy. Um, but I have a friend who uh, was once, you know, quite clinically depressed and, and was taking antidepressants, and she was very embarrassed about that, which I, I'm a big proponent of anyway, but she she said to me, I want you to know I'm not taking enough to be really happy. I'm just taking enough to feel a little bit better. And I said, why don't you take enough to be really happy, for God's sake? You know, you're taking this stuff. Um, but that's how we are, you know? Like, I, I don't deserve to be really happy. I can be like, I don't need to be really, really bad, maybe. I can be a little bit better, but really happy? No way. You know, and so the more loving kindness we have for ourselves, the more we understand it's like, yes. May I be really happy. I'm mm. capable of that. I deserve that. And it's not to the detriment of others. That's what actually allows me to care about and, and try to, you know, be good to others is because I have that going inside. Well, I, 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 would, I would add is, is that in my brief experience when doing that form of meditation, the form that you teach in that way, My own capacity for happiness for myself has not only improved, yeah, yeah, but my experience of actually being able to wish those friends of mine who have bestsellers on the New York Times bestseller yeah. list uh, their yeah. happiness and yeah. genuinely feel it, yeah, right. Not not some patina of of oh this is the right thing to do. Namaste. I'm going to be a good person, uh -huh. right? But really be in that place of that being the spontaneous expression. Mm -hmm. um, and then noticing afterwards that I didn't have that other spontaneous expression that I used to have, which was jealousy or envy or a sense of diminishment in my own self. And just right. noticing the difference there. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't struggle with it. I still struggle with it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, we're human beings, you know? It's the nature of it, I think. Yeah. I think you know it's it's in the it's in that process that tension of going back and forth, and that's one of the things that I always 
appreciate about our relationship is that we can go to those places and go back and forth and share those experiences with a kind of, and you used the phrase before, a kind of rueful bemusement. Yeah. There I go again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Not self-flagellation, condemnation. There I go again. What's wrong with me? That's right. That's right. You know, yeah, so it's beautiful. So, listen, Sharon, thank you so much for this. This this conversation, I know folks are going to respond well to, and, and, you know, uh, I encourage everybody out there to, to read your work, take classes, reach out, go on retreat, check out Insight Meditation Society. Um, the work you do is so important. The work that you have done for 44 years has been so powerful and so helpful for everybody. And thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, well, thank you, really. It's great. It's great yeah. to see you. Yeah, good to see you. So that's it for our conversation today. I know a lot was covered in this episode, from links to books to quotes to images. So we went ahead and compiled all that and put it on our site at reboot.io slash podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can find out about that on our site as well. I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen. If you enjoyed the show and you want to get all the latest episodes as we release them, head over to iTunes and subscribe. And while you're there, it would be great if you could leave us a review, letting us know how the show affected you. So thank you again for listening, and I really look forward to future conversations together. How long till my soul gets it right?